We're looking at 1 Samuel today, chapter this evening, chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, my message is entitled, What Happened to King Saul? What Happened to King Saul? And the Bible doesn't tell us who the author of Samuel is. First uh, and Second Samuel were one book originally. Samuel covers a transition period from theocracy to monarchy. Remember, God ruled through men of his choice in the judges. They were not national, they were local. There were several judges in the Holy Land ruling at the same time. But Israel was not content with that system. They wanted a king. Now, God was their king, but they didn't accept him as their king the way they should have, and they pushed for a human king. They wanted to be like the other nations of the world, and that's not a good thing to begin with. And so God finally said, all right, you can have a king. And he chose Saul as the first king. As we think about the Lord being the king of kings and lord of lords, we have to think, is he my king? Is he my lord? Is he on the throne of my life? Years ago, I remember receiving a track from someone called Four Spiritual Laws. And it talked about the Lord being on the throne of your life. And I remember trusting the Lord as a young man and then uh, rededicating my life with that track, thinking, I want the Lord in my life. And I had to probably rededicate a bunch of times. Uh, and God knew that I was serious at some point in time, began to show me that he was going to use me and bless me. But what happened to King Saul? In chapter 9, verse 19, we're going to find out that God chose him. And then in chapter 31, verse 4, we find him committing suicide, telling his armor bearer to run the sword through him, and he ends up falling on his sword. And there's different ideas on how that happened. But what happened? Why would a man who was chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel end up dying that way? Why would that happen? We're going to share some reasons why. Chapter 9, verse 9, or verse, excuse me, verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 19. We'll skip verse 18. 1 Samuel 9, 16, 17, and 19. Let's stand. In verse 16, tomorrow about this time, I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake of thee. This same shall reign over my people. Of course, Saul draws near, and then verse 19, And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer, that means the prophet. Go up before me into the high place, that means where the altar is, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. God, we thank you. We thank you that Samuel knew the heart of Paul and could share with Paul his heart, telling what's going on in his life, and that Paul would realize this is indeed of God and that he would be chosen to lead Israel. God, we thank you for the lessons we learned from his life, whether they're good or bad. Lord, help us to apply these words to our life. I need thee every hour. I need thee this hour, Lord, to bless as we preach God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Here is Saul, chosen to lead. And Samuel would share things with him that would enlighten Saul and make him realize this is of God, you know. Think of so many times in Scripture where God uh, represented himself in one way or another to man, in this case through Samuel. Remember, Nathaniel was sitting under a tree one time. Later he met the Lord, and the Lord said, I saw you under the tree, and Samuel, or Nathaniel was blown away because God 
knew what was in man, as Scripture often says. So here we find Samuel coming to anoint Saul. Now, what happened? Well, verse 21, let's notice that uh, first of all, he was humble. Verse 21, and Saul answered and said, I am, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speaketh thou so to me? Why are you telling me I'm the anointed? Why are you telling me I'm supposed to lead Israel? Don't you realize I'm from the smallest tribe? I'm an insignificant person. I'm not from a famous family, and you're asking me to lead this, this nation? So first of all, we noticed that Samuel, excuse me, that Saul was humble. He was humble. He didn't think he was up to the task. Then look at chapter 11 and verse 6. Chapter 11 and verse 6. Second of all, we find the Spirit of God upon him. The Spirit of God upon him. Now remember, the Holy Spirit did not dwell permanently in the lives of believers prior to Pentecost. Remember, he would come upon believers and then depart from them. We find this in all Bible characters. But here, the Bible says in verse 6, And the Spirit of God, capital S, came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Israel was being mistreated, the Ammonites, and so forth. There's a story behind this. We don't have time to share all that. But he was anger with righteous indignation. You know, be angry and sin not. He was right to be angry, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He was now the leader, and he had to do the right thing. So we find him as a humble man, and as a man who the Spirit rested upon and used many times in his life. Third, I'm not going to go to the Scripture, but we know the Bible said he, had a, he was living, he and Jonathan, a pleasant life. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 1, but I'm not going to turn there and look now for sake of time. So third, he was living a good life, a pleasant life. Uh, and, and certainly that's a sign of, of God's blessing. Then we find he was victorious in his life. Look at verse 7 of the chapter 11. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent, <clears throat> and sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so it should be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Now they're going to stand together, and he's going to be victorious. Verse 11, it was so on the morrow, that, the next day, the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host of the morning watch and slew the Ammonites. So, you know, here he's victorious in military. Again, God's spirit, God was upon him. And then, somehow, some way, he ends his life by suicide. What a story. What happened to him? Well, we're going to look at that for the next few moments. Why did Saul have such a great change in his life? Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13. In verse 9. Several reasons. I have five reasons listed here. Clear and obvious reasons that Saul ended up dying by his own sword. First of all, he was arrogant. In chapter 13 and verse 9, he knew good and well According to the, the law, he was not of the tribe of Levi, and he should not be trying to do the work of the priest. But what did he do? Chapter 13, verse 9. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Drop down to verse 11 and following. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Makash, Mikmash, and by the way, mark that in your Bible, and you can read a great military story 
of General Vivian Gilbert in World War I, who won a great victory at Michmash by going through a tunnel, and he'd read about that in his Bible, and he uh, brought a great victory over the Ottoman Turks, and you can read about that, and I don't know why I brought that in, but I saw Michmash, it triggered my memory. Therefore, said I, the Philistines, verse 12, will come now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast done foolishly. And he goes on to say, because of what you've done, your seed will not sit on the throne forever in the last part of the verse. So first of all, he's arrogant. He presumed he could do the work of a priest when he wasn't called or set apart or sanctified by God to do the work of the priest. There's a lot that can be said there, and I've heard several sermons preached about this, and some of them were kind of off base. I've heard people say some things, and I was like, wow. And... Uh, being a priest under the system of Levi and the Mosaic law is not the same as being a pastor called in the New Testament to pastor a church. Big differences. So we don't want to make that comparison. There are similarities, but certainly there's plenty of differences. But here he was doing something that he was forbidden to do by God, and he did it anyway. We find Samuel, the prophet, saying, you were foolish. Second of all, chapter 15. Chapter 15, and you know, well, you know this story certainly, or have heard of it, probably heard it preached a time or two in your life. Second of all, he was just plain disobedient. Just plain disobedient. Look at chapter 15 and verse 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way which he came upon which came up from Egypt, he says. I remember, God says. Verse 9. And so, But Saul and the people... Uh, well, verse 3. i got to back up. I'm sorry. Now go and smite Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have. Verse 3. Spare them not, but slay both man and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now, Pastor, I don't understand why God would instruct him to do that. So I need to pause and make a comment as to why. Why would God tell him to kill everything? It's an example, a type. Remember, the Old Testament gave us types and examples of New Testament principles to be taught later. We talked about extreme examples of separation in the Old Testament. You can't have corn and wheat in the same farm. Had to be a certain amount of distance between those farms. You couldn't do it. Why? What's wrong with that? Why would that be sinful? To teach the principle of separation. We are supposed to be separate from the world, aren't we? So that's a hyperbole, an extreme example of separation. Here's the same thing. God teaches the principles, the principle of first fruit. The first fruits always belong to God, you see. And so the first city Joshua conquered, what was he supposed to do? He was supposed to say, all right, we're not going to keep the treasures. We're going to give them to God. But he hid the treasures and they kept them, not, not Joshua himself, but Remember, Achan hid the treasures. He didn't give what belonged to God to God. And so it seems like a difficult challenge and a difficult order from God, but God said it was very clear to Saul that he needed to uh, deal with everything. In verse, uh, the Bible says in verse 3, go smite, take care of this, but he didn't do it. And small, Saul, excuse me, verse 7, smote the Amalekites, and goes on to say he smote them. But verse 8 says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, 
and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Paul and the people, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, you know, the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs. So this was an act of disobedience. God said destroy everything. He didn't do it. Anything short of total obedience to God is wrong. When God lays something on your heart to do or shows you something in Scripture and you don't do it, you have disobeyed even if you just disobey a small part of it. There's so many examples like that. We, we think, you know, even of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you think, Ananias and Sapphira, why, why would God treat them like that? Because they didn't give everything they made from the land sale. They gave a good portion. That's 10%. Isn't that good enough? Not when God says give it all. See, anything short of total dis disobedience displeases God. And so here we find uh, him being disobedient and not destroying these people. And in verse 11, the Lord said, it repented me. It means I changed my mind about him being king. I'm sorry. Verse 11, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me. That's how God feels when we do one thing wrong. That's why we have to confess, because we break God's heart every time we disobey. And verses 14 and 15. And Samson, Samson, I, how many words have I messed up tonight? Samuel said, what meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen? Saul, Saul said, I did everything, well, then why do I hear animals? And Saul said in verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. And you know that's a lie. He saw these animals and thought, well, I'm not going to waste these. Surely God doesn't want these animals wasted. And he disobeyed. He disobeyed. And disobedience will always cost us something. Whether it costs us the respect of people who admire us and look up to us, or it hurts God, breaks his heart, it always costs something. Remember that when you do something sinful. You'll always be disappointing someone. Third, chapter 16. Not only was he arrogant and disobedient, but we find in, in chapter 16 he was envious. And this is an interesting story. I, I've talked about envy a few times, and I want to say to you, I have seen more relationships broken because of envy. And here in chapter 16, verse 4, four it says, And Samuel did that which, was, which the Lord spake, and he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? Chapter 16, verse 14. And I said, verse 4. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, we know that he's not right with God. The Spirit of God departs from him, an evil spirit comes on him and, and troubles him. And, and the Bible said, And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command, let our masters, what that means, now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is cunning player of the heart, and let him come to pass, when the evil spirit of God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And it worked. The evil spirits would depart because music is a powerful instrument. Did you know that? Music is very important. And we, we tell young people, be careful of the music you listen to because it can, it can be very powerful. Look over to chapter 18. So David um, is a heart player of, of 
Saul's and he helps him out. Chapter 18 and verse 6. It came to pass as they, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, he defeated Goliath, you know the story, that the women came out in the city singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets and joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands or tens of thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. What is it? The green-eyed monster. And Saul, verse 11, David, he has an evil spirit, and David comes with his hand to play the play as he had in other times. Verse 10 and verse 11, he's playing, and Saul cast a javelin, for he said, I'll smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided his presence twice, and Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. What's going on? Well, the women sang a song. Ah, oh, Saul was great, but David's even greater. He's killed more people. And the Goliath thing, that story became a giant of a story, right? And uh, it just, just overwhelmed the people. They just thought David is one awesome warrior. And Saul, Saul becomes envious and tries to kill him. And it ends up getting so bad Saul's son, Jonathan, who was about probably 40 at the time, and David was about 18 at the time, begins to tip David off when his dad's after him. Jonathan and David were like this, and Jonathan realized that David was God's anointed and was going to replace his own dad. And Jonathan was loyal to the Lord, number one, and that made him loyal to David, the next king. And he would tip David off, and David had to flee and hide from Saul for quite a while, hide in caves. And I've been to those caves and seen where he's hidden, and it's quite awesome stuff. But think about him having to be on the run from Saul. And who was it that saved his neck? Saul's own son, Jonathan, who loved, loved, loved David. And so what a great, what a great, um, great story here of, of, of Jonathan's loyalty, but obviously Saul's jealousy or envious, envy, I'd say. Then we look to chapter 22. He's vindictive fourth. And it seems as though these sins just, uh, these mistakes just pile up on one another. You know, sin is that way. You, you don't realize how powerful sin is in your own life because you'll do something small, but you'll have to do something a little bigger to cover up the small thing you did. Before you know it, you're doing worse things than you ever dreamed you'd do. And so he's just getting worse and worse. He's arrogant, disobedient, envious. Now he's vindictive. Vindictive. Look in chapter 22 and verse 13. He's upset because Saul had, he's upset because a priest helped David. And Saul killed the priest for helping David. Look at 22, 13. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and thy son Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword and hast inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as this day. So he kills the priest for helping David. The priest did the right thing. He prayed about it. He realized he needed help David. And so what does, what does Saul do? He murders the priest. Look at verse 18. And the king said to Doug, Turn thou and fall upon the priest. And Doug the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priest and slew him that day. Four score and five persons did wear a linen ephod. So uh, the, the murder of 85. And here, here, here's the thing. To kill priests because you're a vindictive person. 
shows what Saul's heart was. And that's the power. That's the power of the devil and what he can do in our lives. And so here is a vindictive, just killing these priests and, you know, to kill 85 priests. It's a lot of, of Levites to kill because they took care of David. But that's Saul. That's Saul. And he look, notice something we often don't notice. He uses an Edomite to do the dirty work. Probably couldn't find an Israelite that would do it. An Israelite would think twice about killing 85 priests. So he gets an Edomite. Can you think of any famous Edomites that you know? The Herod clan, they were all Edomites. John the Baptist, Jesus, the children under two. The Herods were Edomites, and the Edomites were terrible people. They were descendants of Esau. And we know they were terrible people. So here he is now, he's vindictive. He's now murdering. He's done everything imaginable. And then it gets even worse. In chapter 28, he seeks advice from a witch. In chapter 28. And there's great debates in seminary classes about whether this was, uh, you know, Samuel or this wasn't. Of course, you know Samuel's dead. And, and we read here in chapter 28, verse 7. Then said Saul unto his servant, Seek a woman with a familiar spirit, that I might go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said unto him, Be, Behold, there's a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on different clothes, and he goes to see her, not wanting her to know. And Saul wanted advice from her. He wanted to get advice from Samuel, who's now dead. Some time has passed now. And, of course, the woman seeks out Samuel, bring me up Samuel, and they had this discourse between uh, this witch and, and so forth, and Samuel supposedly talking here. But here's the problem. No matter what we believe about this, this, uh, this passage, Deuteronomy 18.11 says, do not ever seek out advice. Do not seek out witches and fortune tellers and soothsayers and all the different titles they had for people that worked with evil spirits. And Saul did that. You know, it would have been so much better for him to repent of everything he had done and go to the next priest in line and say, I want to repent. I've been a bad king and a bad person, and I'm asking for forgiveness. And would you offer a sacrifice for me? He could have done something different, but instead he seeks Advice. He wants Samuel. Well, Samuel's not around. And so he seeks Samuel's return from the dead and wants this dialogue with him. Why did all these things happen to Saul? Well, he didn't do the simple things that he needed to do to be a good leader. You know, as Christians, if we don't do things God's way, we'll be a disappointment to God and everyone who looks up to us. I think of Psalm 119, 9 and 11. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path. Hide the word in your heart that you won't sin against God. He ignored, he ignored the five chapters of the Pentateuch. Now I'll tell you this, he knew a lot about the Pentateuch because every Jew in life was instructed to do readings. And there were so many things that Jews did to learn about Scripture. And yet he ignored what he did know. He ignored it. Think of all the things he ignored. I mean, he knew the Ten Commandments, but he murdered someone. He knew the Ten Commandments and he lied about killing Agag. 
He knew all about disobedience and obedience. He knew all about uh, making a sacrifice when you're not supposed to. He knew he wasn't supposed to consult a witch, but he did all those things because he was wrapped up in his own life. He didn't care about others. He didn't care about the example he would set for his children and grandchildren. He didn't care about the nation of Israel. He cared about his own power. You've known people and I've known people that are power hungry in life. They just want to be in control of everything. I've known people like that and I never want to work under someone who's a control freak. You know, because they're just so controlling. You can't make a decision to blow your own nose without asking for their permission. That's not good leadership. And Saul became that way, possessive of his throne. When you don't trust Jonathan and David, and David was a man after God's own heart at this time. Jonathan was a godly man. When you don't trust those closest people and trust the Lord, you're making a mistake. You know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, he didn't have that scripture. We do. And we didn't have, he didn't have the Psalms that David had written, but we do. So we can apply principles to our life so we don't become like Saul. When we let sin creep into our life, it chokes off all the fruit-bearing opportunities. It starts with not having fruit in our life. Then it steals our joy. Then it breaks our fellowship. And before you know it, we're in sin so bad, we don't even know where we are. Most of the time when I meet people who are out of fellowship with God and tell me their story, how they were reared in church and had trusted Christ, and now they can't make heads or tails of anything. They can't make a good decision. They, they, they make one mistake after another. Hey, it's just a progression, and it goes from worse to worse to worse till you're so far away from God, you, you can't really acknowledge God's presence until God hits you over the head with a two-by-four. And sometimes that's how God hits us. All of a sudden, he, he just jerks the rug out from under us, and he gets our attention. And he says, here's the problem. And you know that old Lindberger cheese joke, don't you? The guy who said, boy, it stinks in here. And then he went out of the room, said it stinks in the whole building. He went outside, said the whole world stinks. He didn't realize he had some Limburger cheese in his mustache from lunch. The problem was right under his nose. And that's the problem with being backslidden. We don't realize it's right under our nose. The problem's our heart. And the only way back to God is not a process where you change and reform and go to a meeting and meet with a counselor. It begins with you admitting you're the problem, confessing that sin and seeking God's forgiveness. That's where it begins. So many people want to get back to God. And the devil makes this great big list of things they've got to do. Well, you need to quit this and quit that. And, go. and they're going through all this process and they realize God, God doesn't even acknowledge them yet because they still haven't said, it's me, I'm wrong. And when you can't admit you're wrong, you've got a problem. There's a, a, a sickness called narcissism, and I think you may have heard of this. It's someone who never says they're sorry, never admits they're wrong. They don't see their own fault. Everybody else is at fault. Everybody else is wrong. The narcissist doesn't say he's sorry. He doesn't admit he's wrong. And if we're not careful, we'll become like that. That's a sickness. They say most of these serial killers, a lot of them are narcissistic. It's all about their big ego. 
they don't recognize the value of life, so they're killing people. They're raping people. All they care about is their ego and themselves. And you, you got to wonder, was Saul that way? To think about a man who was chosen by God, who the Spirit of God came upon him, he allowed just a little bit to creep into his life. He should have sought God. Look at verse chapter 31. And we'll close here. Chapter 31, verse 4. The Philistines are winning. He's no longer victorious. Jonathan's been killed. The battle's going bad. He's wounded in verse 3. In verse 4, Saul says to his armor, Draw thy sword and thrust it through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. This is how it ends. The wages of sin is death. Here's a literal, literal example of what it means just to ignore God, to do your own thing. And you know, we talked this morning about 73% of Americans active in church and it's down to 47%. Out of that 47%, what do you think the percentages are? And we don't know the hearts, but God does, of people who are truly dedicated to God. I mean who put God first in everything they do. What do you think it is? I'm sure it's small. And that's why the Great Commission's not finished. And that's why our kids and our grandkids and our lives are full of problems because we really don't seek God. Now, I'm not saying because you have a wayward child or a financial problem or a health problem that you're backslidden. But I'm saying this. We are promised that we can live an abundant life in this life. That's something to think about. And when it's not abundant, we've got to examine ourselves. Whenever whenever my kids did things, I automatically got on my knees and said, what, what, what do I need to change, Lord? My son shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. What's going on? Why is he that way? Why is she that way? And when, when, you, when you realize that your life does matter to others, you start to change and live for others. Others, Lord, let this my motto be. There's a good poem on that, and I can't think of how it goes precisely. But when we are really right with God, we're thinking of other people. You know, I don't want to go out and do something and throw my life away. Go out and pick up a trashy woman and go to a motel and have someone see me. You know why? Number one, remember what David said, against thee only have I sinned. The grammar there means, God, I've hurt you more than anyone else. Obviously, David hurt everyone else. Why does he say, against thee only have I sinned? Primarily, God, I hurt you first. And if we really love God like we're supposed to, we don't do something like that because we don't want to hurt Him, the one who sent His Son to die for us. Second of all, we don't want to hurt our family. I wouldn't want for my kids to have to pick up a paper and read or something that we don't have papers hard anymore, that dad's in jail, got pick, picked up for picking up a prostitute. There was a guy I knew his name, don't know him, but professing Christian guy was picked up for that very thing and his name was in the paper. That's horrible to think about. It's going back many years. 
But second of all, I don't want to hurt my family. What, what, the, what would that do to my kids? Third, my church folks. I wouldn't want to hurt you. And all of us need to think about this each and every day. What I'm doing, would God be pleased with it? Would my family be embarrassed by it? Even my neighbors, you know? Hey, our lives matter. Our lives matter. They're important. We're a Bible everywhere we go. What does 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3 say? Ye are our epistle, known and read of all men. We're not written with ink on tables of stone, but with the Spirit of God on our heart. We're a Bible everywhere we go. And I don't want to be a bad example and a bad testimony. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We know, God, that you loved us enough to send Jesus Christ to pay for all of our sin. And Lord, we owe it to you. And as you tell us in Romans 12, we need to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And that's reasonable, Lord. We know that. Help us to be reasonable and live for you. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. So I'll stand, please. Thank you.